his buddy asked him, he said, well, why did you fire your pastor? And that's when the fellow said, well, he, he spoke too much about hell. The guy asked him again, he said, well, what about your new pastor? What does he speak on? And the guy answered, well, he speaks on hell too. Well, are you going to fire him? And that's when the guy explained, oh, no, man. When the old pastor spoke on hell, he seemed to enjoy it. But when the new pastor speaks on hell, he weeps. It's interesting. God has a harsh message to deliver to the people of Judah. But he delivers that harsh harsh message through a caring and compassionate messenger by the name of Jeremiah. He finds a man whose tear ducts are dripping. And Jeremiah is a sensitive man who heralds a serious judgment. Jeremiah is also called the 11th hour prophet. He prophesied as God's clock of judgment struck midnight. He was the final call, you might say, for the nation Judah. You see, Jeremiah oversaw the nation's fall to the Babylonians. Three times, these foreign invaders defeated Jerusalem. In 605, 597, and 586 B.C., the final invasion led to the destruction of the city itself and to its temple. Jeremiah witnessed these destructions and the people's demise in the process, and he eventually saw them led away to Babylon in shackles and chains. His sorrowful and his mournful and his tear-filled dirges and mournings are all recorded in a book that is appropriately named Lamentations. It reminds me, though, of the wedding reception in the church basement. And hung on the wall of the room all around the basement were plaques where they had sort of framed in different Bible verses. Most of the verses spoke on the mercies of God, but not the verse that hung right over the newlyweds as they were cutting their cake. In fact, the plaque there quoted Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Flee from the wrath to come. <laughs> this, in essence, was Jeremiah's me- his message for over 40 years. Flee from the wrath to come. He warned the people of a coming judgment. And then he witnessed the results of them ignoring his warning. First one tells us that Jeremiah was from the priestly family who lived in Anathoth. Now, I'm sure that Jeremiah grew up looking forward to becoming a priest, offering the sacrifices, teaching the law, but God had additional plans for this man. God wanted Jeremiah to not only be a priest, but to be a prophet as well, a divine spokesman. Jeremiah would confront kings. He would end up challenging nations. The office of a priest, remember, was obtained through a person's pedigree. But the role of a prophet was bestowed on a man as a result of a specific calling from God. And Jeremiah's calling is described for us here in chapter 1. He writes in verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations." Before Jeremiah was in utero, he was in the mind of God. God conceived a purpose for Jeremiah before he was even conceived in the womb. I believe the same is true for you and me. 
Before you were a gleam in your father's eye, as they say, your father in heaven ordained you for a specific ministry. God's plan was on the go even when you were in utero. Even in your mother's womb, God was molding you and fashioning you in accordance with his plan for your life. He has specific designs for each of us. I think verse 4 also proves that as far as God is concerned, preborn babies are prophets and doctors and engineers and mechanics and ditch diggers. They are real people, actual people, who one day will make a vital contribution and God considers them not only human, he considers them special and he considers them servants and his people that he wants to redeem one day and use in special ways. They deserve the opportunity to be born and to blossom into that person. Jeremiah says in verse 6, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. Again, the Hebrew word translated youth does not refer to an elementary age child as much as to a maturing young man, even as old as his late 20s. Remember, age was a crucial factor in Hebrew culture. A priest, for example, didn't begin his ministry until he reached the age of 30 years old. Jewish society equated age with wisdom. I'll never forget the fellow I spoke to one time. I invited him to church. And he told me, he said, I'm not going to your church because I won't go to a church unless the pastor is older than I am. I thought, wow, that's limiting God. In essence, he's saying God can only use old men. God can't use young men. Jeremiah was reluctant to embrace his call to ministry because of guys like the one I spoke to. People prejudiced against youth. He was afraid that people would look down on him because he was a young man. But God responds to Jeremiah in verse 7. Do not say, I am a youth. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. And here God dismisses the excuse once and for all, Oh, I can't serve the Lord because I'm too young. Hogwash. God doesn't look at age. He looks at attitude. Men and women of faith come in all ages. Notice, too, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Do not be afraid of their faces. For I am with you to deliver you. Again, Jeremiah was a sensitive, impressionable person. And as a result, he was vulnerable to subtle forms of intimidation. He was affected by how people looked at him, by their facial expressions. And I wonder how often we've been intimidated by the shrug of shoulders or by a scowl or by a smirk. God warns Jeremiah not to let the feedback of people alter his message. He has to speak the truth in love, but then let the chips fall where they may. We need to do the same. The man or woman of God looks past the faces and focuses on the heart of the person he wants to reach. I'll never forget the lady who sat on the back row one Sunday morning. And she was kind of intimidating. She just stood, sat there and she stared at me and she had the most piercing eyes 
And she had this blank look on her face. And, and as I progressed, it didn't get any better. And I told jokes and she didn't laugh. And it was just... And I was just sure that my words were bouncing off of her like a ping pong ball against a brick wall. Only afterwards did I learn that at the conclusion of the sermon, she turned to her friend and together they prayed for her to receive Christ. The Lord had spoken to her heart. Never be intimidated by what you see on their face. You don't know what God's doing in their heart. And God wants to work. You speak the truth in love and you let God do His work. Do not be afraid of their faces. Jeremiah says in verse 9, Then the Lord put forth His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Remember, every work of God begins with a touch from God. God equips those that He calls. He says, See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. In God's economy, Jeremiah was more important than kings. The office of president, the office of premier is a notch below that of prophet. In the next few verses, God gives Jeremiah two visions that outline his ministry. In verse 11, he sees an almond tree. And the Lord says to him, I am ready to perform my word. You see, the almond was one of the first trees of the year to blossom. It flowers in mid-January. It's a harbinger of things to come. It's a leading indicator that spring is on the way. And likewise, Jeremiah's ministry would be the first warning of this coming judgment upon the nation. In verse 13, Jeremiah sees a boiling pot coming from the north. And he says, out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. This boiling pot of judgment would prove to be the kingdom of Babylon that would come and bring destruction against Judah. In verses 17 through 19, God makes a bittersweet promise to Jeremiah. I'm sure this is a promise that Jeremiah returned to over and over again through his ministry to gain comfort and assurance. The Lord tells him in verse 17, Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Now, I'm sure it was comforting for Jeremiah to know that God would strengthen him and that God would deliver him. But when you look closely at the prophecy, and when you examine the scope of the opposition that Jeremiah is going to encounter, this prophecy is also discomforting. Jeremiah will stand against kings and princes and priests and people. God says against the whole land. In other words, he'll hold the torch of God alone. He'll have to learn to stand alone. You know, it's been said, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. 
No one likes to be told of sin and judgment. And people tend to turn off anyone who tries to remind them of those things. And this was the rejection that Jeremiah would face. Jeremiah's ministry begins in chapter 2. The Lord tells him, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem. Let those tears drip, Jeremiah. Saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. God reminds the nation of her first love. There was a time when the Hebrews sought the Lord with their whole heart, when they were grateful for their deliverance from Egypt. There was a time when they wanted to obey God and worship God and follow God. They had such a good beginning. And yet in verse 10, God says an amazing event has taken place, an event unprecedented in the annals of history. Verse 11 says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. In other words, even pagans remain loyal to their gods, even though their gods are nothing more than chunks of wood and stone and metal, idols who are no gods. And yet the Jews have turned their back on the one true God. It's shocking. They rejected the God who orchestrated their deliverance. They rejected the God who worked on their behalf to provide their needs in order to pursue impotent idols. Verse 12 says that even the heavens are aghast at their stupidity. To me, there's only one other scenario that seems more idiotic than to reject the true God for no God or for a false God. And that's to reject the true God for no God at all, which is what we moderns have done. To me, the stupidest thing you can do is to attribute an orderly creation to randomness, to arbitrariness, to sheer chance. To me, that's even more stupid than attributing it to some idol, even though you know that idol is no God. Verse 13 contains an important indictment. God says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, whenever you tour Israel, all over the country, you find hollowed out cisterns. A cistern was a hole dug in a rock, and it was situated so that it would catch and store the runoff water from the rains. The holes would catch the rainfall And then they were capped in order to prevent the evaporation and they served as a water supply for the people during the hot summer months. Sometimes a cistern, though, would crack and, of course, it would become useless. Spiritually speaking, the world that we live in is nothing but a cracked cistern. How quickly its pleasures get depleted. They're unreliable. Often when you need them, they're not there. Whereas our God is an eternal spring who bubbles up with constant refreshment. We all have needs, but guys, where do we go to meet those needs? 
Do we drink from the wellspring of God's love or do we turn to the broken cisterns of this world? In verses 23 and 24, God compares the nation Judah to a donkey in heat. They were willing to sacrifice their integrity and their dignity to fall in bed with anyone who could supply them a brief moment of pleasure. You see, the Jews were a people consumed with lust. The slightest promise of instant gratification, some new thrill, some exotic titillation caused them to forsake the true God and chase after a foreign idol. Verse 27 quotes the Jews. They call the tree their father and the stone their mother. But when trouble comes, Jeremiah says they will cry out to God, the true God, for deliverance. People today act the same way. They never think of God until when? Until they get in trouble. Verse 33 suggests the people have looked for love in all the wrong places. They have mistaken love for sex. Guys, love is a commitment, not a sexual experience. The experience is meaningful and satisfying only when the commitment is intact. And as a result of them looking for love in all the wrong places, we're told in verse 34 that they find blood of the poor innocents on the nation's skirts. The same has happened today. Aborted blood covers the skirts of our nation. Since 1973, over 40 million babies have been aborted in America. It's an atrocity, and it's a crime for which our nation will one day be judged. Judah's spiritual state is summed up in verse 36. Why do you gad about so much to change your way? In other words, you're just gadding about. One day you're with the Lord, the next day you're not. What's the deal? Recently I read about the death of the man who wrote the song Hokey Pokey. And it's reported that the mortician had a terrible time preparing the body because he would put the right foot in and then the right foot would come out and then he'd put the left foot in and the left foot would come out. That's an awful joke. But it does illustrate how a lot of people treat their commitment to the Lord. One day they're in. One day they're out, back and forth, up and down. They'll walk the aisle on a Sunday. They'll vow to follow the Lord no matter what. Then on Monday morning, the devil will toss them a bone and they'll take the bait. There's no consistency to their commitment. Guys, we all need to stop gadding about and get serious about following Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, Jeremiah brings up the problem of revolving door marriages. Couples divorced to marry and marry to divorce. And he says, that's how Judah has treated the Lord. Look in verse 1. You have played the harlot with many lovers. Guys, we need to ask ourselves, what's the object of our affections and our desires? Is it some pursuit, some place, some possession, some other person? We need to be careful not to play the harlot. We need to be careful to reserve for Jesus our deepest devotion. Chapter 3 contains the parable of two sisters. You remember, after Solomon 
the twelve tribes of Israel divided into two nations. The northern ten tribes came together as the nation Israel, whereas the southern two tribes became the kingdom of Judah. In essence, two sisters. The northern sister of Israel was the first to fall into idolatry. And her, her unfaithfulness to the Lord ended up in an ugly breakup. Verse 8 says that God wrote Israel a certificate of divorce. You would think the southern kingdom of Judah would learn from her sister's mistake. But no, she too pursued idols. She also offended the Lord. And since Judah had the example of her sister, she was held to a greater level of responsibility. Verses 15 through 18 predict the day when both nations will repent and will return to their God. These verses speak of a time yet future when Jesus will return to establish his kingdom on the earth. In verse 15, God promises in that day, I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. The word pastor means shepherd. And to me, this is a very vital verse for anyone who wants to be a shepherd or a pastor according to God's heart. What makes for a pastor or shepherd according to God's heart? The verse tells us it's one who feeds the flock of God with biblical, scriptural insights. This is why Jesus told Peter, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, if you love me, what? Feed my sheep. As your pastor, I am going to disappoint you on occasion. You may invite me over for dinner and I have to decline. I may not be able to visit you in the hospital when needed. Or maybe I'll be unable to schedule an appointment at a convenient time for you. But I want you to understand, it's because I don't want to disappoint you in an even greater way. For me to be a pastor, according to God's heart, I have to prepare myself to teach God's Word. Serving up a steady and a substance-rich diet of spiritual food has got to be my top priority if I want to be a pastor, according to God's heart. And I'm willing to risk failing you in other ways so that I don't fail you in the most crucial and in the most important way. Verse 16 looks forward to Jesus' millennial kingdom. It says, Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was the centerpiece of all Judaism. It is symbolic of the throne of God, symbolic of the presence of God. Believe it or not, there are people today who believe that they have seen the Ark of the Covenant. There are Jewish rabbis who teach that the Ark of the Covenant will be discovered in the last days. The rabbi of the Western Wall, a man named Yehuda Getz, says he has seen the Ark in one of the subterranean corridors under the Temple Mount. 
There are real-life Indiana Joneses who are searching for the ark. Some have combed the caves on Mount Nebo, others the caves in Qumran. Other archaeologists believe the ark is in Ethiopia. In the end, though, all this speculation about the ark will be irrelevant. For the prophecy here in Jeremiah reminds us that the day is coming when the ark will be forgotten. Why? Because the Lord will reign in Jerusalem. The symbol will have been taken over by the Savior. No longer will people be interested in the ark. They'll want to go and see Jesus. The ark was a symbol, but Jesus will reign in Jerusalem. And the symbols in that day will be forgotten. They'll be made obsolete. Jesus will be the star of the show. In chapter 3, verse 22, God calls to his backslidden people, Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. It's interesting. The word backsliding occurs 16 times in the Bible and 13 of the 16 times in the book of Jeremiah. And here's what's even more interesting. Of those 13 times, seven times the word occurs right here in this chapter, Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah is apparently the book on backsliding, and especially chapter 3. And here he tells us how to avoid spiritual backsliding. Look in chapter 4, verse 3. There we're told, break up your fallow ground. If you want to keep your heart from backsliding, then break up the fallow ground. In other words, repent. Keep your heart soft. Be sensitive and open to God. Take the backhoe of humility and clear out the rocks and the roots and the crusty earth. Get rid of the obstacles between you and God. You know what those obstacles are. Ask the Lord to give you a tender heart, a compliant heart, one that's in tune and ready and willing and eager to listen. In chapter 4, verse 5, the trumpet sounds, the warning siren blasts, Jeremiah becomes a Hebrew Paul Revere. He predicts an invasion. The Babylonians are a-coming. In chapter 5, verse 1, Jeremiah tries to find a man who seeks the truth, but there's not one. And verse 28 indicates it's because of prosperity. They have grown fat and lazy and dull of hearing. Tragically, they've concluded that they no longer need the Lord. And all the while that Jeremiah is sounding the alarm, there are false prophets telling the people what they want to hear. Read chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. It says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And catch this. And my people love to have it so. You know, I I used to get mad at these prosperity teachers on television. You know, just ripping people off in the name of God. How dare these crooks take advantage of God's people? Until I realized they're not the only ones at fault. You see, the people that support them are as guilty as they are. For rather than be ashamed of these charlatans, they have bought into their sin. Why do people send them those dollars? Why do they fund their lavish lifestyles? 
It's because they want to be as rich as the gaudy, gaudy preachers themselves. Their hope is, is that the offering they're sending them will come back 100 fold. Sending their money into one of these television evangelists is like buying a religious lotto ticket. You see, greed is motivating both ends of the deal. I've concluded many people stay in churches that are abusive and that are corrupt and tolerate greedy leaders because they're getting something in return. They've sold out the truth for whatever happens to tickle them at that church. And they're tolerating this stuff. The sad indictment in verse 31. Catch it. The priests rule by their own power. They're abusive, in other words. But then the sad, sad statement. And my people love to have it so. It takes two to tango. It's been said, of all God's creatures, man is the only one that knows how to blush. And chapter 6 describes a people who have forgotten how to blush. They've not only sinned, but they're no longer embarrassed or ashamed of their sin. Yes, they give their offerings to God, but not from their heart, not out of obedience. And as a result, cruel and merciless marauders will come from the north and ravage Judah. It seems that only Jeremiah was taking seriously God's warnings. You see, the people of Jerusalem were numb to their spiritual condition, and they were deceived as to the consequences of their actions. For after all, they had the temple. The temple was God's footstool. And God would never allow Jerusalem to fall. It's the home of God's untouchable temple, or so they thought. Chapters 7 through 10 are known as Jeremiah's temple discourses. God sends Jeremiah into the gate of the temple to shatter the people's illusions. He shouts out in verse 4, Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In essence, Jeremiah tells them that if they keep their sin up, even their temple will topple. Jeremiah's point is that the possession of religious articles provides no immunity from God's judgment. Hey, you can go to church. You can carry your Bible around with you. You can wear a cross around your neck. You can pray holding a string of beads. It's all meaningless. God doesn't care about religious relics. He looks for heartfelt repentance. He looks for true faith. Jeremiah tells these Jews, he says, look, go up the road a few miles to the town of Shiloh. You see, it was the home of the temple's predecessor, the tabernacle. But you remember what happened. The Philistines came and destroyed Shiloh. And they annihilated the tabernacle, and they took the Ark of the Covenant captive. The tabernacle didn't save Shiloh, and the temple won't save Jerusalem. Just because you have religious things, just because there are religious relics in your possession, or that you have your name on the right rolls, etc., 
doesn't make you immune from God's judgment. That involves a repentant heart. That involves faith in Jesus Christ. The latter half of chapter 7 describes the depth of Judah's idolatry and the depravity that resulted. Chapter 8, verse 5 says that Jerusalem is a perpetual backsliding. How would you like that to be described of you? A perpetual backsliding. And yet, despite Jeremiah's warnings, the temple priests, the false prophets, tell the people that there's no problem. They foster within the people a false sense of security. And Jeremiah points out their deception in chapter 8, verse 11. He says, They have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Well, there are people today that like to water down the truth, like to tell you everything's okay, rather than being honest about our situation. At the end of chapter 8, Jeremiah is overwhelmed with sorrow for his rebellious people. And he cries out in verse 20, The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. What a sad, sad statement. All Judah's troubles could have been averted if they had just heeded the warning. Jeremiah says in verse 22, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? In other words, there was medicine in Gilead. There there was a means of curing the problem. The people just didn't avail themselves to the treatment. There was healing available. Don't let that be the case tonight. If you hurt, if you're bruised, if you've been battered, if you're bleeding, there is healing for you tonight in Jesus' name. There is a poultice of love that can suck out the poisons from your heart. Just as there was the plant in Gilead that was used as a balm, likewise, there is healing in Jesus. Ask the Lord to put the poultice of His grace on your hurt. Ask the Lord to cover you with His love. And watch the healing begin. He'll begin to suck out those poisons and those pains. And He'll replace it with His peace and His love. Chapter 9 verse 1 is a classic example of why we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Again, his tears are dripping. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. In light of the coming judgment, the Lord concludes in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. It's interesting. The values of the world haven't changed a whole lot over the last 2,500 years since Jeremiah. People today still glory in these same three things. They glory in wisdom. They glory in might. They glory in riches. 
People today still prioritize academics, athleticism, acquisition, mind, muscle, money. But none of these things are any are of any lasting value. And none of these things fill the emptiness inside the human heart. The most valuable commodity on earth is the knowledge of God. Let him who glories glory in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord, says the Lord. To know God. That's what the wise man seeks after, to understand his ways, to behold his character. You see, only a connection with the God who created us can bring lasting joy and can fill our emptiness inside. In chapter 10, verse 2, the Lord says, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. And he speaks in terms of idolatry. In other words, don't follow your horoscope. Don't participate in idolatrous rituals. And he makes a statement in verse 3. He says, For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest. The work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. And every now and then, right before Christmas... Some well-meaning Scrooge will step up and use this verse to try to forbid Christmas trees. See, Jeremiah said you're not supposed to put up a Christmas tree. It is true that the Christmas tree was of pagan origin. But over the years, Christians have redeemed its meaning. And now we use the Christmas tree to point our children, ourselves, to Jesus, to glorify God. At our house, the lights speak of Jesus. He's the light of the world. The evergreen tree speaks of the everlasting life that he gives us. Jeremiah is not talking about a Christmas tree. Jeremiah is referring to the trees that were carved into phallic symbols and used in the worship of the fertility cults. Jeremiah is talking about idols, not Christmas trees. He's living a good 600 years before Jesus was even born. The rest of the chapter is a contrast between the idols of the Gentiles and the God of the Jews. Verse 7 calls Jehovah God, King of the nations. There is none like you. Verse 10, He is the living God and the everlasting King. Verse 12, He has made the earth by His power and established the world by His wisdom. In verses 23 and 24, Jeremiah expresses the right attitude, a repentant attitude. He says... O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Well, we need to make that our prayer. Lord, I know the right way is not in me. I need your correction. I need your guidance, Lord. Help me. In chapter 11... Jeremiah is told to go through the streets of Jerusalem and to remind the people of the covenant that God made with their fathers. And you remember that covenant. If they obeyed the law, law, God would bless them. But if they disobeyed the law, God would curse them. And Jeremiah says that the curses are a coming. 
Verse 16 says that the nation God planted as a green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit, is about to be violently uprooted. Needless to say, Jeremiah's prophecies against the temple, his exposure of the compromised priesthood, and his attacks against the deceptive prophets didn't win him any friends among the religious establishment. You can bet that Jeremiah wasn't welcomed at the luncheon sponsored by the Jerusalem Ministerial Association. In fact, there were some priestly types who literally hated Jeremiah's guts, and they wanted to see him dead. And a plot is hatched. At the end of chapter 11, a group of priests, and catch this, from his hometown of Anathoth, scheme to assassinate the prophet Jeremiah. Recently, I was asked, which of life's disappointments is the most difficult to overcome? And without a moment's hesitation, I responded, the wounds inflicted by a friend. Isn't that the hardest for us to get over? You see, these are the struggles you don't expect. Yes, you'll have enemies. But when your enemies turned out to be people you thought were your friends, it catches you off guard. It throws you for a loop. Just the thought of past betrayals caused me to ache all over again. You see, against a foe I can defend, but heaven protect me from a disloyal friend. Imagine lifelong friends, close relatives, plotting your assassination. This shook up Jeremiah. And he, in response, he prays this prayer in chapter 12. He begins, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet, let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Now, we'd laugh a little at Jeremiah's prayer if we hadn't prayed it ourselves a time or two. But you hear what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, I I know you're right. I know you're fair. But Lord, I just got a few questions about what you're up to. Because things aren't turning out the way I would have expected. Lord, all I want to do is serve you and people are trying to kill me. What's up with that? You see, at this point, Jeremiah has been serving the Lord for 18 years. And all he has to show for it really are death threats. He wants some relief. Lord, I thought serving you would bring a few blessings. Lord, where are the blessings? Right now, I need a few blessings. God answers Jeremiah, but not in the way you would anticipate. He says to him in verse 5, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? In other words, Jeremiah... Buck up, buddy. Hunker down, Hebrew. Jeremiah, it's time to pull up your bootstraps. If you think it's difficult now, just wait. It's only going to get harder. Jeremiah thinks the answer to his problem is a blessing. He wants some relief. But God tells him that what he needs is some endurance. 
You see, if you can't hang with the foot soldiers, how will you survive when the cavalry comes? Life will only get tougher. The challenge is more severe. The longer I live, the more I find this to be true. I look back on the trials I had during those days when my kids were babies, and I thought changing diapers and chasing them around the house was tough. I look back on that now as the good old days. Now they're driving cars and starting to date, and I'm scared to death, and and, and how am I going to cope with these issues, these problems? You see, I'm discovering life only gets tougher, not easier. The challenges only get more and more severe. Guys, we live in a fallen world, and the longer we live, the more opportunity exists for us to become the target for the pain and the suffering that this world dishes out. And none of us are immune. That's why we need to develop a faith strong enough to endure whatever might come our way. Once the Chicago Bears were playing on Monday Night Football and running back Walter Payton cut off tackle, another nice pickup. And at that moment, one of the announcers commented, Walter Payton has now carried the football for over nine miles. But his sidekick in the announcing booth put it in perspective. He added, yes, and he's been knocked down every 4.6 yards. We need a faith that can get back up. We need a faith that keeps trusting God no matter what. We need a faith that is an overcoming faith. We pray, Lord, give me a blessing. Lord, I've, I've been struggling. Lord, I, I, I just need a blessing. I need some relief from my circumstances. God says, no, you don't. You need more endurance. If you can't make it with the footman, how are you going to handle the cavalry? We need to grow up. We need to build muscle. We need to get stronger. Our faith needs to build. We need to gain endurance. In chapter 13... Jeremiah performs a parable that illustrates God's intentions and the plight of the nation. Call it a spiritual skit, if you will. The prophet here uses a visual aid. Jeremiah takes a linen sash, which incidentally was the undergarment of a priest, a piece of intimate apparel, you might call it, because it represented the intimacy between God and his people, Israel. He takes that piece of cloth to Babylon, where he buries it in a hole next to the Euphrates River, places a rock on top of it, and he leaves it there for many, many days. Of course, you know what happens. It mildews. It rots. The sash becomes worthless. He goes back and gets it, and he shows his people, this is what is going to happen to the nation Judah. She too will be taken to Babylon, where she will mildew and rot and live in captivity by the Euphrates. And Jeremiah says, God will ruin her pride. And guess how Jeremiah responds when Judah fails to heed his warning. Verse 17. But if you will hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. The weeping prophet is at it again 
dripping tears. Jeremiah's temperament did have the right combination for the job God called him to do. He had tough skin, but he had a tender heart. I think all too often I have soft skin and a hard heart. That's not a good combination. We all need to cultivate tough skin, but a tender heart. Jeremiah 13, verse 23, asks an interesting question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? And of course, the answer is no, unless you're Michael Jackson. (laughs) Couldn't help that. But you see, for the Ethiopian to get new skin... Or for the leopard to get a spotless pelt, they would what? They would have to be born all over again, wouldn't they? And notice the follow-up question. Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil? It's human nature to sin. Thus, it is as difficult for us to change our nature as it is for the leopard to become spotless. In fact, it's impossible. You see, our only hope is the Ethiopians if he wanted to change his skin or the leopard if he wanted to change his spots. The only way to do that would be to be born again. And that's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's only when we experience the new birth that the Lord replaces our rebellion with a compliance to him with a compassion for others. Chapter 14 begins, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Unlike Egypt and the Nile, Babylon and the Euphrates, London and the Thames, St. Louis and the Mississippi, Atlanta and the Chattahoochee, the land of Israel was not situated next to a major waterway. In fact, the Jordan River, it's barely a trickle. It doesn't even count. The land in which God placed his people had no lakes and it had no rivers to supply it with water. And the reason was that God wanted his people to depend on him for their needs. And that's why they needed the rains in the spring and in the fall to water their ground, to fill their cisterns, to supply them what they needed. And when God wanted to get their attention, guess how he did it? He just engineered a drought. Jeremiah understood that the drought was the result of the people's sin. And he prays, he intercedes for them. But in verse 11, the Lord instructs him, do not pray for this people for their good. In other words, that's it. They have passed the pivotal point. Understand, God's patience does have its limits. There is a time, there comes a moment when the window of opportunity slams shut. The judgment is set. It begins and once it starts, it runs its course. Problem though Jeremiah is having is if if this is the case, he wants to know why the other prophets are not saying the same thing. Why they are giving a rosy forecast. Why does he alone predict gloom and doom, sword and famine? God answers him in verse 14. 
He says, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Notice the four possible sources for a false prophecy. It can be a false vision. Someone just mistakes their own imagination for the Lord's will. It can be divination. In other words, it could be demon-inspired. It could just be a worthless thing, a rumor, a foolish tale that was heard, got blown out of proportion, an unsubstantiated story. And then it could be outright deceit, a deliberate attempt to mislead. I guess I would add one more. could be the pizza. It just mistook. Apparently, the false prophets of Jeremiah's day were motivated by a little of all four. Chapter 14 closes with Jeremiah again trying to intercede for his people. But God says in chapter 15, verse 1, Even if Moses and Samuel, and you remember, they were two of the most prolific intercessors in all the Old Testament, even if they stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. In other words, God has made up his mind. Judgment is now a done deal. Verse 4 mentions one of the straws that broke the camel's back. The Lord says, I will hand them over to trouble to all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. You remember Manasseh was the king who destroyed the copies of the law. He was the one who set the idols up in the very heart of the temple. He took the nation to new depths of depravity. You know, his sin knew no limits. And even though he repented later in his life, he never was able, the nation was never able to overcome the damage done by the influence of Manasseh. In verse 6, the Lord says, I am weary of relenting. In other words, I've had it. I'm tired of giving this nation second chances. I wonder when the Lord will say that about our nation. Verse 14 sums up the judgments that precede it. The Lord says, For a fire is kindled in my anger, which shall burn upon you. Several years before Jeremiah... This wicked king Manasseh launched a book-burning campaign to eliminate the word of God. In the days of his successor, Josiah, a priest found a copy of the law in the back recesses of the temple. People thought that the law was gone, that Manasseh had destroyed all the copies. But this priest found one. He brought it to the king, and the king read it had copies made and had it read to the people of Judah and a revival broke out for a short time among the people. It's interesting, the person, that priest, who made the discovery of the law was a man named Hilkiah. And if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 1, you find that Hilkiah was the father of Jeremiah. And in verse 16, Jeremiah recalls his response when he first read the word of God that had been rediscovered by his father Hilkiah, he says, Lord, your words were found and I ate them. 
I consumed them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. That's how I feel about the word of God. Man, I get into it. I want to eat it. I want to consume it. It satisfies my soul like nothing else can do. When I read God's word, there's a satisfaction that takes place. It is to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. The human soul has sweet tastes and only God's word is rich enough to satisfy them. Never forget that. But in the years since him first reading the word, (coughs) Jeremiah's disappointments in ministry have created in him a bitterness. And that's why he complains in verse 18. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? Jeremiah is accusing God of letting him down. Now, if you've been active serving the Lord, beware. For bitterness can poison your ministry. When things don't go like you had planned. When the people aren't as appreciative as you had hoped. When you serve and serve and no one pats you on the back, there are times when you can get bitter. And you can allow bitterness to poison your ministry. Never forget who you're doing it for. You're not doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for the glory of man. You're doing it for the glory of God. You're trying to be faithful to Him. It reminds me of the ship from the University of Miami that was doing some environmental research in the Florida Keys. In fact, they were collecting data that would help manage oil spills when suddenly the boat hit a reef and ended up dumping 200 gallons of diesel fuel into the Florida Keys. You see what happened. The boat ended up polluting the very thing that it was trying to serve. Trust me. It is easy for us as servants of God to let the same thing happen. It is easy for us to let a rotten attitude sour our ministry. We can end up polluting the very environment that we're hoping to serve. And here Jeremiah's woe is me attitude leads him to accuse God of unfaithfulness. But hey, it was not Jeremiah who was it was not God who was unfaithful. It was Jeremiah who had been unfaithful. And that's what the Lord tells him in verse 19. He says, if you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me if you take out the precious from the vile. He calls on Jeremiah to repent and to return and to be faithful to him. Isn't it interesting? We are all made up of part precious and part vile. We're a mixture. And a continuing sifting needs to constantly take place in our hearts at all times. Lord, help me remove the vile. Lord, help me dwell and promote the precious. 
Lord, continually help me sort that out. Help me discern one from the other and help me get rid of the one and help me trust you with the other. We need to maintain an attitude of repentance. That's where we'll end tonight and we'll pick up next week in chapter 16.